Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Positive the People. In this episode, it's me, Diara, Miles, and Kaya talking about the news that you don't know from the past week, the underreported news with regard to race, justice, and equity. And then I sit down with Pulitzer-nominated reporter Chip Jones to talk about his new book, The Organ Thieves, the shocking story of the first heart transplant in the segregated South. Y'all, I learned about this initially online, reached out, read the book, talked to Chip. Wild, wild, wild. Here we go. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram at Diara Ballinger. I'm Miles E. Johnson. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Feral Rapture. I'm Kaya Henderson. You can find me on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. And this is DeRay at DIY on Twitter. This is a special, special edition of Pod Save the People Woo-woo. because the Miles E. Johnson, it is your born day. And we okay. appreciate Woo-woo. you, your magic, Woo-woo. your love, your joy. And we just want to celebrate you today on what is probably, I don't know, your like 27th birthday. So, okay. If it's your birthday, make some noise. Come on, Kaya. If it's your birthday, make some noise. That's like a Baltimore club makes. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. Let me represent. Let me represent for New York. Shine a light on it. Whoa. Shine a light on it. Whoa. I'm Harlem make shaking. Room. You can't let it work. You can't see it. Make <laughs> it. If it's your birthday, make some noise. <laughs> I'm Harlem shaking, if you all can't see it. Thank you all so much. I'm 32 years old um, and and very wild. You didn't have to say the goodness. We didn't need that. We didn't. (laughs) And I'm so grateful to be sharing my birthday with um, my aunties and my my uncle, no matter how forgetful some of them are. (laughs) You know who that was for. And we're coming off of... The Oscars, which were last night, I am, let me just say, I am so tired this morning. One, because the Oscars was six hours long and I watched all of it and it was daylight saving. So then we lost an hour. I don't really know how it works. I just know that I woke up this morning very tired. So um, big wins last night for everything all at once, which was amazing. Michelle Yeoh, first Asian woman to win an Oscar, which is this the more I watch the Oscars, I'm just like, why are we doing this? Say why, that. Like, why are we? Why? Mm. Um, but it 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 was it was interesting. The performances, I like the. I think it the Indian performance. What was it? I think raw raw. I probably should get that right before I'm just broadcasting it. Um, but that was amazing, and they won best song, which was fabulous. I don't really have a lot. I mean, what were y'all's highlights? I mean, I, you know, besides everything all at once, I was kind of just. I will say that the idea that this is the second non-white woman ever to win that Oscar is wild. Atrocious. Bananas. I mean, that's nuts. And then, um, you know, what a sweep for A24, the first studio to win all the major awards in one night. Shout out to A24. Yeah. I didn't watch it because I was on a plane, but I feel like uh, I saw enough of the recap and, you know, shout out to Michael B. Jordan and Jonathan Majors for... Gosh, that for was the highlight. That was the highlight of the whole Shouting out Auntie Angela and Rihanna and that D-R-E-S-S, baby. Mm, I loved it. I really did. You didn't look at my house? Oh my no, gosh. I, no, I loved it. No, I loved it. <laughs> 
I, no, I loved it. No, I was I was in my head thinking about Angela Bassett, and that head nod was about her getting snubbed. Rihanna looked amazing. She actually sounded like really amazing. Um, and then on top of that, like, yeah, it was just really beautiful. It was super long. Mind you, last night I went to go see Patty LaBelle. It started, went to go see Patty LaBelle, got drinks, came back, and it was still on. I was like, this is wildly, wildly, wildly long. Um, but yeah, I I I see everybody in 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 internet mourning over Patty Le- or excuse me over Angela Bassett not winning and uh, you know we we got we we gotta maybe it's because I, I I had an absentee father or something I'm like we gotta get used to the disappointment we got we gotta bounce back <laughs> we gotta get here. we gotta bounce back y'all we, we have to expect it. <laughs> Can I just pause for one second and tell you a cool moment that just happened? I'm in the Amtrak lounge recording because I have to take a train. And this a, a black woman walks by and she looks at me earlier, doesn't say anything, but she just walks by literally right now. And she goes, I love your podcast. Uh, <laughs> yes, oh, yes. When she comes yes. back to her seat, I'm going to try and turn the ca- She doesn't know that. I'm just yeah, sitting right. here. She doesn't know that we're recording right now because she can't see you all. But she smiled. And she was like. I love the podcast. Oh, oh, so I love it. So I'm gonna um, when she comes back, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull her. Oh, I love that. It's amazing. And also, so I don't get canceled by the Indian community. It is not too not to the film. <laughs> and but no, the song is not too not to. The blockbusters are 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 rise, roar, revolt. And it was fabulous. And I the one thing I will say, and I did say this, I had like a tiny Oscars get together last night. What's fascinating to me, and this is why we need to come together as different communities, marginalized communities, seemingly, is that when Rihanna had her time on stage, it and, and it was a Black Panther moment, it was blackity, black, black, black. Then when there was kind of a nod to everything at once, and I know David Burns is probably somehow tied to the song, but maybe he's not. You better like, say everything, th- everywhere, all at, at all once. at once. What? I'm sorry, <laughs> Auntie. Sorry, everybody. Um, it was it was you know Asian performers that the the one of the stars from what is it? Everything, all everywhere, at, where all, all at, at, at I'm once. never gonna get it. It's too Dior long. Has I'm, it and, down for and and I and I love a twenty four and their client and I adore them, but that title's too long for me, y'all. I need it to be like <laughs> two words less. Not to um, give the suggestions after they won the Oscar. <laughs> I think they're doing pretty okay. <laughs> you seem to be in the minority. They seem to be, most people seem to be able to handle it. <laughs> you want to tell them it's never going to make it if y'all sort that name. It's, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> um, but it was interesting because the Asian moment had white participation. The, <gasps> in, the Indian moment had Ooh, white girl. participation. Oh, And I know that the that was part of the film. It was explained to me while I was making my own commentary in my house that that was part of RRR. Like that was the moment where it was like because it, it talks about colonialism and all of that. But I think it is interesting though. But I don't know. I don't know if y'all noticed that or if that's just me. 
being... Wait, wait, finish the statement. Well, Are you no. basically saying there was not white participation when we had the blackity black moment? That's what I'm saying. They finished with us. It's over. We wrecked it all last year, huh? <laughs> Can't come back. <laughs> they said, no, health insurance in, uh, in America is too flimsy for us to be on stage with y'all. So we're going to go ahead and, and, and call this one out. I wonder, and, I, and obviously I don't know, I'm, I'm black American, just so this is, I could be totally 100% wrong on this. I wonder how much that matters to other races um, like it matters to black people because I think that just because of the black American history of it of of our our history and specifically black American because even sometimes I'll see participation when it you know in like in from other African countries and it just seems to not be a big deal for everything to be black and to to enforce this be sh- like for other things to be shut out. So I wonder if that's a us thing too, because of specific things we went through. Sometimes it's also a little schizophrenic on somebody's part, right? Because like the appropriation of black culture is rampant, right? And the lack of acknowledgement, I think, is what we're talking about here, right? The the lack of participate, like you take our stuff, you consume our stuff, you enjoy our stuff, you whatever, but you can't celebrate with us in the moment when it's our time. And I listen, I'm with you, Miles. Let's get accustomed to the disappointment. I I don't even expect it anymore, right? But for some people, it's still that white validation is still really important. I thought DR was actually going somewhere different with this because one of the critiques I saw on Twitter that I thought was interesting was like, they were like, of course, Jamie Lee Curtis wins because you have to center whiteness in a movie about Asian people that like, Mm. how could you, how could you get out of a movie that is just about, I mean, it's like all the main characters are Asian. And somebody was like, she wasn't even the best supporting character in her own film. You didn't even. (laughs) But I think that was, that is my point though. Like, I think it is fascinating. Like, can you imagine a white person being on stage during Rihanna's performance that was a nod to Chadwick Boseman and about Black Panther? Like we would have lost it. But everything, everywhere, or like getting your best supporting actress once, award at Wakanda. Perf- yeah, and it's like everything, everywhere. I think I'm getting it all at once. That it was a predominantly, it was an Asian film with Jamie Lee Curtis, but and the perform Asian? and the performance was. I just was like, mm. but was it? Was it, it? Okay, so I haven't seen everywhere, all everywhere, all at once. <laughs> 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 Everything, so, everywhere, so, and, I, and, and, and maybe this is my like my, my Negro Stockholm syndrome, just being a Black American and loving all types of stuff. And I love the Activia commercials, so I I don't hate Jamie Lee Curtis. So <laughs> I Not, I love the Activia commercials, <laughs> and I, and I love all the things she's done. Right. That that I think that was just so this revolutionary. Let's talk about it. Um, but I'm thinking. From my perspective, there were obviously Asian people in every in in, in in all at once, right? But was it a Asian film? I don't know this. So like when I think about like the last Asian film, like like um that was like really big, like this was like rich, uh crazy rich Asians, which was about the culture, was about the heritage, it was kind of it was like fantasy, and it was an Asian film. So I feel like if somebody was like white in that and they won when Crazy Rich Asians, it would be so obviously um, inappropriate because this is a film about Asian culture, et cetera, et cetera. But 
and Wakanda is about black culture and and, and African and, and, and African culture. So that feels different, but it's but it's all at once really a film that features Asian actors. Does that make am I making sense? Like I, I don't know how much the Asian um but again, maybe I'm just making excuses because I don't I'm tired of being being upset about race. So I'm just trying to be like maybe it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> I'm like, let that Activia woman, she's been running from that man her whole life. She's been running from that. Halloween. I'm glad her get her little gold statue, y'all. I get it, but Was Angela that her Bass- first Oscar? Yes. Oh, yes. fascinating. And yes. she was and she was and she's kind of positioned because of the Activia commercials and because we don't appreciate horror movies, she was kind of positioned to never really win an Oscar. So I think that that was kind of her it like her end. Like I get the politics of how come she won, why she won. God, 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 but hold on. If we, like, we can't, we can't even start the who is owed an Oscar story without talking about Auntie Angela not oh, absolutely. It for Tina Turner, right? For the, what's love got to do with it. Malcolm so, X. <clears throat> yes. Anyway, the Oscars are the Oscars. They're going to be the Oscars. Us expecting them to be anything but the Oscars might be our fault. Yeah. Okay, well, shout out to April Rain, your legacy. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess I guess nothing really happened. I guess where April Rain at? <laughs> she she got us talking about it in a different way. You know, I, I do think that what I'd say about Jamie Lee Curtis is that I do think it's an Asian. It's a film about Asian family. Like that is the that is the star of the movie, and Jamie Lee Curtis is like the antagonist ish. Um, so she has a role to play and she's good at it, but it, it definitely is like a story. It'd be like Miles if there was like a story that centers a black family and there's like a white person at the welfare, at the welfare office. Why got like to be at the welfare office? Right? <laughs> Let's unpack that. I've tried, I've, I've tried to play on all the tropes. Is that that, that would be what Jamie Lee Curtis's role was. She was like an employee at the... So she was good in the role, but the st- the movie is about the family. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that makes that makes total sense to me. I guess I'm just thinking. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense to me. I just know there's a lot of films that. Yeah, I just I just haven't seen the film, and I wasn't sure how much that the Asian culture was a part of it. So maybe that was a a, a loophole. But you you know, I'm always down to say white supremacy does it again. Speaking <laughs> of which, speaking of which, Silicon Valley Bank failed on Friday, and a ton of people's money was imperiled and um, somehow or another, everybody's going to get their money back in what was the worst banking failure since the 2008 crisis. I know about this thing firsthand because my little startup's money was in Silicon Valley Bank, y'all. No. But, oh, wow. Oh, for real though. For I mean, all most, many entrepreneurs, um, especially tech entrepreneurs um, have their bank accounts and their assets at Silicon Valley Bank. Something like more than 50% of tech startups and healthcare um, startups are were banking with Silicon Valley Bank. So this had huge implications. And today, Monday, is, a, is the draw for payroll for most people who pay their staff on the 15th. And so it would have been catastrophic if the government did not step, like literally millions of people would not get paid this week if the government hadn't stepped in to deal with this issue. Um, but y'all, capitalism is a beast. Um, and I, I don't, I mean, 
I don't know what to say about this, but it, I don't. I think there are lots of people who just went through the weekend thinking it was a regular weekend, but there were millions of people this weekend who were literally in crisis. One of my big investors had over a hundred million dollars in Silicon Valley Bank, and the FDIC only insures you for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and so they were looking at all of that money potentially going. Uh, another company that I know just did a raise, a twenty million dollar raise, to keep their company going for the next couple of years. And that money would have been gone. Like it, it is. And these are not like, I mean, these are not your LinkedIn's and your, or your Instagram's or your metas. Like these are small, many of them are small entrepreneurial, innovative startups and stuff. And so Wu Chow, your president was just on the TV talking about how everybody's going to get their money. And that is capitalism fixing capitalism, I guess. Yeah, money is so fake. <laughs> like I, I, I've read the article back and forth, and I, and I technically get it, but also I just don't because, because I, I, I live in a world where, uh, what do you mean you gave me twenty million dollars and I don't got it no more? Yeah, but, that's right. That's right. <laughs> we all live in that world, Miles. We all live like, in that world. I'm like, that's just not gonna happen. And what do you mean that? Yeah, I remember seeing the other thing where there's, I guess, like talk around uh, it being like, how do you say this? Like that there were some kind of like like draws, like the other people had insight that this was going to happen and there were like withdrawals that were suspicious that were like um that were that were happening so i, I thought that was an interesting perspective too that there were some people who were in on the in the know and 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 some people were just left vulnerable yeah peter thiel who's a big venture capitalist on wednesday or thursday put out a thing saying that all of his companies should withdraw their money from silicon valley, valley bank and so that created a run on the bank where lots of people are like, give me my money, give me my money, give me my money right now. And the bank could not support it. And so they are, they are investigating whether or not this was manufactured by this, you know, by this, uh, by Peter Thiel's influence in the industry. It's, yeah. Well, everyone should take a lesson from my best friend, Crochet's grandma, who was known as grandma's sister, who every Friday in Tipton, Georgia, would go to the bank and have the people give her all her money so she can count it. And then she give back to him. I know that's right. <laughs> that's or a big Aretha be Franklin like, vibe. Or just be Aretha Franklin and put it in your pocketbook, pocket. honey. <laughs> I will say the only thing, uh, you know, it's so it was so interesting on Twitter to see the VCs talk about the government's responsibility and da 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 da, da while simultaneously being like, how dare you forgive student loans and what is wealth? It's like, totally. this is a social safety net, right? Like, this yep. is socialism. If we believe that the market just corrects itself, then we would let you fail and we just yep. sort of deal with it, right? Like, you put your money in a bank that, that like, made not great decisions with it and, you know, you're screwed. And that's just what... And that's what happens to everyday people all the time. They like make a decision and the system sort of screws them over and they just got to eat it. But when you have a billion dollars, apparently the cost to society is too big for you to eat it. And it's like, that actually is not the market. Like the fact that the government intervenes is is not capitalism. This that's is what right. socialism looks like. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I, I have some good old ignorant news for you all. And I've been on my 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 high horse and high art and high cuisine 
And this came on my on my um on my timeline, and I was like, well, I guess on the podcast I have to go to hell and talk about just true ignorance and just go low. Samson, first of all, Fox has a sub sub subgenre news YouTube channel thing called Fox News, or excuse me, Fox Soul, and has some of the it's Zeus and Fox Soul, I think, are 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 trapped for our community. Has some of the the worst program I've ever seen happen ever. And I've always seen little tidbits of homophobia or just really outdated ideas come just come out of those of, of that programming, but it never kind of like pierces the 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 stratosphere. Like I never see it really take over the timeline. But lo and behold, it happened this week. Samson is on Fox Soul and was asked about pronouns. Samson is a black gay comedian who is mostly known inside of the community, like one of those if you know you know characters. But um he was at, he's a, he's a cis gay black man, but he was asked about pronouns because if you fall underneath this umbrella, we all got to know everything. I don't know why they even asked him. And then he tells this story that to me, when my mama nerves hear it, I'm like, oh, you lying. There, that did not happen. But he tells this story about a non-binary person who maybe presents as a, who, who's, who seems masculine or, or cis assigned or whatever, and basically says, excuse, excuse me, sir. And then the person, com- the person comes and says, I'm a ma'am. And Samson uses this story to say, well, if you're going to be gender um, non-binary or be, tra- or be trans, then you need to put some effort into it. And that putting some effort into it created such a, um, just... T- just a firestorm of a conversation around gender identity, around like what what does it mean to be the things that you feel and who do you have to perform for? But then also, I guess in my spirit, it brought up why are people asking, like why are people asking people who have nothing to do with that identity, their opinion, if not just to create these controversies that are really steeped in transphobia, just so somebody can say something that is transphobic and so we can all be upset about it. Like, that Like it, that was what's most disappointing about it to me, was that somebody breadcrumbed somebody else into just proliferating transphobia for no reason, but no reason but so. Maybe it'll go viral or maybe they'll have a better moment. I, again, I know it's a, compl- a complicated issue, for some people, not to me anymore, but I think it's a really worthy issue inside of black the black community to talk about gender and transness because I think that transphobia and transness touches all black people. And I feel like I've probably said this on this podcast 50, 11 million times, um, that because black people weren't necessarily afforded gender when they when we first when we first came here um in America that we all have been swimming in a type of transness that I think listening to trans people talk about gender and identity will help all black people even if you identify with the 
uh, if you're sexing your gender, like I, if you if you if you identify with what you were assigned with at birth, this this conversation really does transcend and expand one's thoughts around identity, and it makes me sad that it's so othered and so simplified. It's it's made into such a joke when we do talk about it specifically inside the um inside of the black community because it's a really 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 helpful um framework to explore. And yeah, I wanted to bring this to the podcast. I wanted to have a little conversation, use this as a as 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 an as an open door to have a conversation, or just to you know throw stones. I'm down for either <laughs> either option. Here's what I'd say: is that one of the things that was most troubling about Samson's comments, in addition to what you said, was that when challenged on it, <clears throat> Samson just dug his heels, like no critical reflection no sort of deep engagement with people's criticisms initially. It was sort of, a, I said what I said, and in uh, sort of no understanding of his privilege, his assessment, like it just, I, I was not shocked by the initial comments because I've heard people say those things before. So I was disappointed, but not surprised. I was actually stunned by somebody who lives in public in some ways, um, to like not listen, not take feedback, not change comments. That was that was sad to me. I I will say. Um, so first of all, I was like, is this really a show? Like, is this real? This does not seem real to me. <laughs> what is going on here? And admittedly, I'd never heard of Samson before. And I was looking at him. I'm like, who is this dude? And and like, so the whole thing. I, and and I thought his comments were just so ludicrous. I like you, Miles. I was like, this didn't happen. The whole thing just seemed farcical to me. So I didn't even. I didn't even. I, I will be honest and say I didn't even put credence into like he should have been thoughtful. He should have been reflective. He should say something different. It it just seems so unbelievable to me that I was like, who is this dude? Whatever, keep moving. I don't care like what he has to say. But um, but I I do think that a serious I, like I, I think we have to have serious conversations about the trans community in in within the black community in ways that we have not. And I, I'm I like I would love to hear I guess like. Our leaders aren't talking like it's just sort of not really talked about or glossed over or violence, right? Like there are there is no there is no constructive maybe there's not wide stream constructive conversations about um, the trans community in the African American community in our churches in our community centers in other places where we have conversation, and so I wonder what it's going to take to change that. What what the hell is wrong with these people? I just I don't even I don't have anything that is substantive, substantive to say other than that. Like, I mean, I can't believe this thing has four hundred and sixteen thousand subscribers. This Fox Soul thing, and I think what's even more problematic to me <laughs> is sis who was like sis who was like, well, I don't even know about the quick 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 girl. Go sit somewhere and sit down. What is wrong with you? It's just, I mean, I just feel like Black folk, you know, we add, we want compassion and empathy and all these things from so many other people. And then we can't love ourselves enough to give it to one another within our communities. Like, I just don't understand it. Like, these these aren't, these aren't trans and queer folk. It's not like we appeared yesterday. 
come on now. Like, it's just wild to me. And I think when you go on, because I went on Samson's Twitter after you sent this, Miles, and it's like, now he's just getting so much content off of the, the, the silliness that he said, right? So it's just, it's also just playing into this whole, like, people needing to celebritize themselves as well. So it's just, it's sick, it's awful, ill, and we can do better. Don't go anywhere. More Pontiac the People's coming. So my news this week, I saw this pop up and I was like, everyone pack your bags. So in Virginia last week, a Virginia judge ruled that frozen human embryos can legally be considered property or chattel. And he based this decision off of a 19th century law governing the treatment of enslaved people. What? What? I'm just... The preliminary opinion was by a Fairfax County Circuit Court judge. And Fairfax County, mind you, is right outside of D.C. I'm not... This isn't like Lynchburg, Virginia. Like, this is in the DMV. So, Richard Gardner delivered... He delivered this opinion, and it's this long-running dispute that's been happening between this divorced couple. Um, But essentially... The the ex-wife is suing to, suing her ex-husband to use the embryos that obviously his sperm are part of the embryos. Um, and this Judge Gardner decides that the heart of this case, the facts in these case, um, really should be governed by the principle of goods and chattel, tying back to this 19th century law. I just, y'all, I don't even know where to start. Um and so and and he he also said, you know, there's no prohibition on the sale of human embryos that may va- be valued and sold and they must be considered as goods and chattel. Just like, hmm, that makes sense to him. Um this this case is still sort of ongoing. He hasn't officially ruled, um but what he has given is this premise based on this wild law that should be outdated. And why would any judge use this as precedent for deciding any case? Um, you know, and folks in folks in, in Virginia that are part of the bar are in an uproar about it, but it, I'm at a loss for words on this one. I just don't understand why this judge would think, I mean, maybe he just was, maybe the concept of an embryo being outside of someone's body was just so surprising and 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 seemingly shocking to him that he I don't know there's no for me there's no real clear legal standing or common sense standing for this it was just wild to me I mean you know reproductive rights are a whole complicated issue and you know I could see both sides in terms of the divorce couple right I want to use the embryos I don't want you to use my embryos because you're not my wife no more whatever The thing is, in 2023, you couldn't find any other legal justification for how you wanted to rule but slavery? Mm, Okay, judge. Are you elected? Are you appointed? It's time for somebody to 
rethink this thing because, or, uh, you know, legal people are supposed to be some of our smartest folks sometimes. Supposed to be, supposed to be, supposed to be. And this dude reached way back in order to make his point. And like, that's just not politically expedient. It's just not, it's just not smart. Um, I don't have much else to say on that. Yeah, well, yeah. <clears throat> wildly inappropriate. Um, what what's also a, a, a interesting to put it to put it in a word <laughs> is that that judge is still doing his job. That he is upholding the exact like he's actually doing the function of a judge. And I think that the fact that he did it so boldly and blatantly is getting us talking, making us um, outraging us. Just you know as it should, but actually he's upholding the, the the exact system he's supposed to be upholding. And I think that these type of moments are, should fuel us to re-examine all things legal, all things justice system, because he's right. That that's that, If that's where you're going to, that's where our legal system and our social justice system is, is undergirded by, is by slavery, by unfair and racist and white supremacist acts. So, so, so maybe <laughs> if I'm thinking about a silver lining, using this moment as a way for us to really be able to dig in and, 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 and take all these legal, these, these legal point of views and take them back to their root and figure out what we can do to either totally transform them or just uproot some of them because they're obsolete. I'm optimistic. It's my birthday. People often say, you know, it happened so long ago, slavery's in the past, da, da, da. and it's like the the foundation of the thing was just built on slavery. So unless you undo the foundation, it will live today. It might not live as loud as it lives. It might not live as totalizing as it lived before, but is it still present? And this is a good reminder that when we think about the penal code and the criminal justice system, it's like you actually have to uproot it at the core. It's The war on drugs is not enough, right? Bail is not enough. There's actually like a mindset and a sort of the minutia of the law can live again unless we change it. And like, this is what I saw when I, when I read your article, DR. My news is about the Memphis Police Department um, and a seven-year period where they were trying to radically increase the number of police officers and change the complexion of the police force. Um, and over those seven years, um, they basically lowered their recruitment and training standards um, in order to meet these numerical quotas. Um, there's a subtitle in the article that's called More Recruits, More Problems, and that just about solves it up, solves, sums it up. Basically, um, Jim Strickland, who was the mayor of Memphis, made a commitment to radically increase the number of police on the force, which is what many cities across the country are currently doing. So just because this is happening in Memphis, it has probably also happened or happening in your neck of the woods. Um, but he made a commitment to get to 2,300 officers. And over that seven-year period, the basically the only way that they could do that was to relax their selection standards, relax their academic standards, relax their disciplinary standards, their fitness standards, their shooting standards. They basically threw out all of the rules that you needed to pass in order to become a police officer. Um, this was all happening after, right after Mike Brown and a number of other um, police brutality and police murder cases 
where um, public opinion about police was low, people weren't applying to be police officers. And so they did things like um, defer the college credit requirements. It used to be that in order to be a policeman, you had to have a certain number of college credit credits. They were like, yeah, as long as you promise to go to college at some point, you can be a police officer. Um, you used to have to do things like um, pass the academy tests. And there were lots of young people, again, coming out with just high school diplomas who could not pass the academic tests that were required at the academy. And so they put them in study sessions where they basically gave them the test, gave them the answers, and then let them take, a get, take the test again. Um, they stopped interviewing people, interviews too time consuming. They stopped background checking the people and again, too time consuming. And so you had people who had literally, who had brutality accusations in the same county. And because nobody was background checking, you didn't realize that this dude was a bad apple, but you brought him into your relaxed standards police academy. And oh my gosh, he ended up being one of the five people who are charged with murdering Tyree Nichols. I wonder how that happened. Um, failures that used to lead to dismissals were now ignored. So things like cheating on tests, not passing your shooting test, um, sexual harassment of, of instructors at the academy. You run into issues with law enforcement while you're in the academy. Usually that would get you tossed out. None of that got you tossed out. All because they were uh, trying to make this quota um, that the mayor the former police chief and, oh, yes, the current Black lady police chief um, handed down. And so what you hear from a lot of the people who previously have worked at the academy is, wait a minute, like, this is not okay. Um, we are, like, these are people who were putting on the streets. We don't feel confident about them. And basically, they were told, if you got a problem with it, you should put your paperwork in and leave this cushy Monday through Friday job and go hump it out on the streets you know, on the weekends and at night with the dangerous criminals. Um, and so there were lots of folks who they knew they were flagging during the academy that were likely to be problems and they became problems. Um, and so all of this is, all of this potentially was foreseeable, but in the quest to put bodies in slots, um, you see this happening not just in Memphis, as I said, but in lots of other places. And so, um, you know, there's not a lot of data that shows how police training works, but um, these officers, many of the officers who spoke out about this spoke on the condition of anonymity because many of them are still working um, at the at the police department. And, you know, they talk about the responsibility of training police officers and how all of that went out the window <clears throat> in this effort to meet their recruitment numbers. So I thought this was an interesting and important um, piece of the Tyree Nichols story that we had not yet heard. Um, and as I said, I think it's happening. There are lots of police departments who, um, because of because of the rising crime and people wanting to be tough on crime, you're seeing a lot of police departments or municipalities allocate more money for more police there's not a whole bunch of people sitting out on Great Policeman Island waiting for us to just find them. And we have to invest in 
high standards around recruitment, selection, training. I mean, this is the whole teacher thing, right? That's how I know this human capital problem, but it's a police problem as well. And I thought you all might want to talk about it on the pod today. That is ridiculous. <laughs> the fact... <laughs> You, you, Say what now? You, you, you know me. I come straight from the gut with it. I'm like, they just put the standards on the, the standards on Fox Soul in order to make sure it, we got to keep this thing racist. We got to mm-hmm. keep this thing violent, and we got to keep it going. And whatever we have to do, we will continue to do it, and we and we'll and we'll turn a blind eye to this, and we'll turn our head to this in order to make sure that it's still violent. It's truly disgusting and again i feel like i say this often here too is it always perplexes me how um it probably doesn't perplex me but it probably still still stuns me no nonetheless it just how cannibalistic it is it's like this is not good for anybody of course black people are going to be harmed in in because of these choices but also this is not good for anybody in in that community, these these low standards. So it's 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 oh it always stuns me how white supremacy will create things and that 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 eat that eats its own as long as you're devoured too. It's a, you know the, the the it's not oh let's let us survive and be good and and we're gonna eat you all. It's like oh no we'll 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 we'll, we'll eat our own as long as we get to uh you know chew on your bones too. Just just a horrible. Horrible, horrible set of standards. Um, but thank you for bringing it to the podcast, Kaya, because, you know, I needed that fire. I'm upset. <laughs> I'm just thinking about... Just because I've worked, I mean, and Drake, I'm sure you know a lot more than I do, but I just worked a tad on public schools in Memphis. And I'm also just thinking about if young people graduating or on the verge of not graduating from high school. And I know, I think Latino, Latino kids in Memphis have the lowest graduation rates. If they were given as many times as these people to achieve something, I just wonder what better outcomes we would have. I'm just thinking like you're, you're getting your hand held to, to get through these things, to pass these tests, to not pass these tests, maybe cheat on these tests, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just, why couldn't this effort and care and diligence be put towards where it should be put towards? One of the things that I'm heartened by is that when people know this, they think it's wrong across party. We've done a lot of polling campaign zero. And when people realize these details, they are like unacceptable, wild, shouldn't be the case. Da, da, da. The problem is that they just don't know. So like when we poll, when the police lie to people across party, people are like, that's bad. Most of the things that you've heard in criminal justice reform or harm reduction, da, 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 when we poll people across party, they're actually on our side. But people's impression of the police is actually just so holistically positive that we lose when we sort of try and address the institution as a whole. But I'm telling you, if we poll people right now and we're like, do you think there should be no entrance requirements, no interviews, no... People across party, across age would be like, this is actually unacceptable. And this to me, I read this guy and was like, wow, what an incredible organizing moment to like 
force this conversation and to create an entrance for people who otherwise are like the police do all these great things and da-da-da. in the same way that like people would be appalled if nurses all of a sudden never got interviewed or like never got like you'd be like that's really unacceptable or like even if teachers you know there are there are some states that are really relaxing standards but the idea that there'd be none people like i would never send my kid to a school where like you just hired any old a high body. school graduate, no background check, and and you didn't interview them. But, I mean, that would be horrific for teachers, but we are putting guns in these people's hands. Like, we are, like, this is, I mean. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and if we, if, if people knew, I am positive, uh, all the testing that we've done, I mean, all the polling that we've done would confirm it. Um, piggybacking off this, my article is about, uh, you know, I think before I became an activist and understood the system writ large, I actually did not know how much the public safety conversation guided everything. I think when I was a teacher, I thought education was a thing. Because I, I remember, Kai, and you know this because you were actually, you know, ran a whole school system. I remember the first time that I actually understood that people choose homes based on schools. Like, I know I'd heard it before, but I didn't know it was like a real, that people like legitimately moved to neighborhoods because of schools. And I'm like, oh my God, that means that's like the quality of the people in my building actually helped shape the neighbor. I like didn't, it was something I saw in movies. I didn't know it was like a real thing until I got older. And I was like, you really moved your whole house because of the kindergarten program, which is really four teachers and a good principal. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. this is really just good people. And I didn't know how much the public safety conversation shapes almost everything else that's not education. So this article is about how in in a conversation about public safety, when people are being elected to office who are progressive or or don't see the police as the only, they might not even be progressive, but don't see the police as the best option for public safety, how there's a attack on local control. So we talked about um, Jackson. Uh, we talked about the attempt of the state to like take over Jackson. We talked about that before. But what I didn't know until I saw this um, I didn't realize that in St. Louis City, there is an effort, or in in, um, in Missouri, there's an effort to take back the police department from local control in St. Louis City and have it run by the state. Mind you, the police in St. Louis City have been independent for almost a decade, definitely were for the protests, and I lived through that. And it was a, you know, not great mayor then, and a certainly super racist police department that were out to get us. And now that Tashara is the mayor, black woman, progressive, you know, some people don't like everything she's done, but she is by far the most progressive mayor they've had in a long time. And you see now these renewed calls to take it back, to like take local control away from the police department. And I think that this will be the thing that like, again, if I didn't have to prep it for the podcast, I wouldn't know at all. Um, but this is what I don't think is is leading in the public conversation, and I wanted to bring it here. I have some particular feelings about this because in the place where I live, Washington, D.C., um, our local government tried to revise our criminal code, which was over 100 years old and was outdated and... Um, and the city council passed it. The mayor wasn't super excited about it, but whatever. Like, this is the way democracy works. And because what people don't understand is that D.C. is still a colony, our we don't get to make our own rules without congressional approval. And so the 
crime hawks in Congress didn't like the revision of our code. First of all, they didn't understand the revision of our code. They just thought it was going soft on crime when, in fact, if you understand the nuances, it was not going soft on crime. Um, and so the led by the congressional Republicans, they set out to disapprove um, the criminal code changes and then our president, who has stood up for home rule for D.C., et cetera, et cetera, who talks about democracy and all of that jazz, when he had the opportunity, decided that it was more important to protect his right flank by siding with these congressional Republicans, oh, and a bunch of Democrats as well, to say, mm, we don't like D.C.'s criminal code because we're tougher on crime. And so they vetoed it. They overrode local democracy. Um, and, you know, Republicans are super hypocritical because all they want to talk about is states' rights and local rights and all of that jazz. And we made some decisions ourselves about how we want to be governed here in Washington, where we pay, y'all that got me started, honey, where we pay more taxes per capita than any other state in the union. And these folks who have nothing to do with our community get to decide what, how, or how we will and won't govern ourselves. It is absolutely reprehensible. Most United States Citizens have no idea that any time the federal government shuts down, the D.C. government technically has to shut down as well. Our schools shut down, all kinds of things because of the way we're tethered to the federal government. And in this case, because the the country is because the Democrats want to show that they are tough on crime, they completely rode roughshod over our democratic rights to govern ourselves. It is absolutely ridiculous. OK, I'm done now. I mean, all I can do is applaud that. <laughs> what, what kind My of rant? I, I got I, more. <laughs> I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even insult what you just said with with a with a follow up. It was this has been like an educational moment for me. Of course, I'm outraged, but I think Auntie Kaya really just you know guns are blazing. I second that as a DC native. I mean, you said it. We saw it in Jackson with them creating a special zone for the white people Mm -hmm. with a whole different police force and all of this jazz. Why? Because of crime. Like this whole crime allowing us to throw out all of the rules and regulations is absolutely reprehensible. And it's just politicization, right? Like it's it's wild to me. When I was at the State Department, one of my jobs was basically a law advisor. I I mean, I had no business doing this, but I'd go to other countries and help them reform old and outdated criminal procedure codes, um, evidence codes. And so it's wild that that can happen far, 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 far away. But the upgrades that we need here in the place that I was raised, no, still going off of 100-year-old um, rules. So I think to give y'all more added perspective to to set you off. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. This week, we welcome author and award-winning reporter Chip Jones to talk about his new book, The Oregon Thieves, the shocking story of the first heart transplant in the segregated South. After a healthy Black factory worker had a skull fracture in the 1960s, his family was shocked to find that his heart was transplanted into the body of a white man without his knowledge or consent. Y'all, 
I learned so much. It was wild. You got to read it to believe it. Listen to the interview to believe it. What a world. Here we go. Chip Jones, thanks so much for being with us today on Pod Save the People. Oh, thank you, DeRay. It really is an honor and a pleasure. So what's wild is I had seen um, a story about Bruce Tuck and the first heart transplant on Twitter, actually. And I read an article and I was like, okay, this feels wild. And then it was like, oh, it's this is a story included in um, in your book. And I, I sent a text to our producer and I was like, can you find him? Like, is he doing interviews? Like, is, like, is he around? Is he doing interviews? He's talking. And then, um, and you are doing interviews and you're here. So honored to be here. I will tell you, I read the book and I was like, oh, this might be just like a longer accounting of the article. And then I'm like, oh my goodness, there's so much <laughs> stuff in here that I like literally never knew, never thought about. So let's start at the beginning though. Sure. How did you... How did you get to this story about the first successful heart transplant? Did you always care about hearts? Was it, did you care yeah. about medical school? I don't know, like, how, no. how did you get here? Oh, well, there I, uh, basically, I'm a former investigative reporter. Uh, I spent a lot of time, like, researching the tobacco industry in the 90s. And I'm down here in the kind of heart of darkness in Richmond, Virginia, with, with tobacco. And uh, I'd written a few other books about the Marines because I came from a Marine family. And uh, I was I was working a second career at a medical academy here in, in Richmond uh, and learning a lot about medicine. Uh, and one day, actually, the story of my book started as a public relations problem um, <laughs> because and I, I just being real about it. Uh, but I, I figured out the best way to boil this down when I talk to audience is like, well, how did you hear about this? Well, like a lot of things in life, it's sort of, you know, from the side door or whatever. Um, I was a colleague of mine at the at this academy uh, that represents a lot of different kinds of doctors uh, in the region down here in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, he's saying, you know, the older doctors, and basically, frankly, it was all older white doctors, uh, were, were like, they really want to, they're clamoring to have an event for this, to honor the 50-year anniversary of, uh, of this heart transplant. And I'm like, okay, I didn't know anything about it, uh, but... This guy said to me, but there's a problem. I said, what's the problem? And he kind of told me the backstory. It's like, well, the heart came from an African-American factory worker in Richmond, Virginia. And it actually led to uh, a, uh, a lawsuit uh, four years later. And I go, oh, really? Yeah. And oh, yeah. Guess who represented the family? And he said, I said, who? He said, Doug Wilder. And, oh, Governor Doug Wilder, you know, first black uh, governor in Virginia history. And I kind of, as a reporter in Richmond, I've been around his administration and stuff. So I'm like, well, oh, that's kind of interesting. Uh, and so I'm going, well, what's the public relations problem for the, 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 our society? He says, well, you know, these older doctors, they want to venerate uh, the this event. Uh, but if it's an open event and a reporter asks about what happened, it's going to be some hard questions. So since I worked at this medical society, I kind of made it my hobby just to, to go dig into it. And then very quickly, I heard another thing, DeRay, about the story that blew my mind, which I was a teenager when this happened. I lived around D.C. then. And there's a guy named Christian Bernard uh, who was very famous back in the, back in the day, 67, 68. And he was the South African heart surgeon. And he was part of this whole story. Because he had taken the uh, technology, the medical technology from Richmond 
and actually gone back to you know South Africa, apartheid South Africa, and applied the the Richmond surgeons' uh, techniques to, to sort of win this huge uh, race because it was kind of like you know, and I started thinking about it kind of as a book. It was kind of like a race to the moon, but it was a heart transplant race. So that's how it started. I mean, I just first of all, you know, my my colleague had to keep away the older doctors who wanted to like hold this event. Like, this is the greatest thing since the Civil War, you know? And like, no, we're not going to do that because there's a whole range of kinds of physicians in the society, and some of them are liberal, some of them are conservative. But the one thing, you know, that, that the society itself shouldn't do would be like uh, just put out some propaganda for these guys. So. They put that to the side. I made it my own project. Like on Friday afternoons, I go down to the Medical College of Virginia. It's now called Virginia Commonwealth University, VCU, and started uh, looking through the archives. Kind of, I basically got, a, I, I say, kind of a master's level degree in medical education uh, over a whole year. And that's how it all started until I finally interviewed uh, Mr. Wilder, Governor Wilder. He kind of didn't want to talk about it. And, and I finally had an interview with him and that's in 2017. And that's, that's kind of where the, where it took off for me developing as a book. How'd you finally get him to say yes? You know, Duray, I basically, (laughs) you know, this whole, this whole story is me, the lowly reporter, basically without, I'm not trying to put myself on a pedestal, but just sort of saying, look, I'm just trying to keep it real. Governor Wilder, and I wrote him a letter through a, through a third-party intermediary, a very, very nice guy at a law school who passed it along. And I said, basically, as I recall it, and I'm just trying to remember a few years ago, but it was like, Governor Wilder, this man's story has never really been properly told, and uh, that's all I want to do. And so from the very beginning, um, my, my initial goal was – was just to tell the story of this forgotten man named Bruce Tucker. It was basically forgotten history. Got it. So can you give, I've had the luxury of reading the book uh, and there's so much more in the book outside of just this one story. Uh Um, But can you, can you tell us, can you tell us about Bruce Tucker? Yes. Well, he was a a guy who grew up in uh, rural Virginia uh, outside of Petersburg which is for listeners never been to Virginia. It's about 30 minutes south of, of the state capital of Richmond. Grew up, uh, you know, a hard, I think, farming life, uh, segregated schools in the 50s. Um, and he followed his brother uh, to Richmond. His brother uh, had polio, actually, William. And he, and he was a very successful small businessman. William Tucker started a shoe repair business. And... Uh, so Bruce Tucker followed him up into Richmond in the, in the mid-50s and, and got a job at a factory. It was actually an egg processing plant, of all things. I, you learn a lot about history when you just start digging. It's like, you know, who knew? Shoe repair shops, egg processing. It was, a lot of this stuff is kind of nerdy, but I, as, a, as a researcher, you get really get into the nerdy stuff, too. Um, but I, I, I learned that he was, you know, a guy who lived by himself. He was divorced. Um, but he had a son living back on the farm, whose name is Abraham, and he was sending child support payments back back home to his son and his grandmother. And um, then one day after work, uh, on May uh, 24th, 1968, he was sitting around with some guys, um, just having a drink. I don't know exactly. I think it was just 
passing a wine bottle around or something. And he, he, he fell off a very low wall and he hit his head and uh, had a very uh, serious head injury. His skull was basically fractured, but he was rushed to a nearby hospital, which was Medical College of Virginia. It's a big teaching hospital in Richmond. And so he's rushed in. And just to jump ahead on the story, okay, for, you know, people can read the, the rest, but what, what really, first of all, shocked me and then ultimately just saddened me was that less than 24 hours, his heart was gone. And the official idea and the official autopsy report that I found said, you know, he died of a head injury. Well, no, he died when the heart surgeons pulled the plug on the, on the respirator and let him die. Um, so the story begins, the book begins, if you've read it, it begins with a frantic phone call from his brother, William, who's saying, uh, Mr. Wilder, then Doug Wilder was a very, you know, young, uh, maybe about your age now, the late thirties. I think of anyone in the forties, really, really young, by the way. Um, <laughs> my, my son's about your age, I think. And so he like said, I need help. And, and Wilder was at first kind of like you, kind of like anybody who hears this story is like, no way. How did this, what happened? They, they stole his heart and, uh, or they took his heart. We can talk about words and, and, and their meanings if you want to, because this was part of my whole evolution as a writer and kind of absorbing the story. Like, well, what was it? Was it a theft? Was it, was it an accident or was it something else? Was it a murder? And, you know, so Wilder uh, took the case and it, it took four years till it went to trial. It was the first um, it was the first civil lawsuit over uh, heart, heart transplants in the United States. No one had ever challenged uh, an institution. And um, it, 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 it actually slowed down uh, transplants around the country at the time because a lot of the you know, like big hospitals i'm sure like johns hopkins in baltimore or or columbia or out in, or out in la they, they slowed down everything because every, the whole country at least the medical uh transplant community was looking to see how this jury would rule and if if you read the book you see how the ruling went and uh it did not go well for the tucker family and the amazing thing duray is, is right now there's still a backstory to it it's still unfolding and I don't know how it's going to uh, resolve, but the university has apologized. Um, I saw you did a recent podcast about apologies, and I started thinking about apologies, the nature of apologies. They apologized recently, uh, and they said they were going to do some things, but that still you know, remains to be seen. So that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell in terms of the issues, but I can, I can stop and let, and let you ask me. What's on your mind? <laughs> so one of the things that I didn't know at all was, you know, in the early chapters, when you talk about just the history of stealing bodies, I like yep. didn't know any of that. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm like reading and I'm like, oh, this is going to be a deep dive on Bruce Tucker. Da, da. And then I'm yeah. like, oh, my goodness, they're stealing bodies from black cemeteries yeah. and medical yeah. residents are being asked to go and dig up bodies. People are, you know, standing outside of the doctor's place ready to kill them. You know, I how did you find that out? Like this, the, yeah. the, the idea that Bruce Tucker, and there were, there's another thing that I was like, oh my God, was that they stole the black person's kidneys in South Africa. I, it was South Africa, I, right? 
Yeah, well, they took they took Tucker's kidneys too when they took his heart. So they took his. They didn't just take his heart; just for good measure, they took his kidneys too. And when with, I no, but with, like, with with no prior consent, right, this is the important thing. There's nobody in his family knew about it. The idea, though, that he wasn't even the first person that they stole from. That like because yeah. the South African story happened first, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. there were there were other things happening. You know your your response, Duray, and I'm glad to hear that because that was my. That was my response when I first started reading the archives of the hospital. Basically, I c- could not believe that essentially what I learned was that medical research, medical schools in America were all founded on, on uh, grave robbing. It done Harvard in the late 1700s, Columbia, um, Penn, up whatever and, and whatever uh, they were doing this was the you, having to have bodies for the anatomy class was the only thing that um they did outside of book learning so they and they had incorporated this from europe this happened in england and in france um my response was the same as yours total horror and shock and the thing about it deray that blew my mind was um it in, in rich, it stopped in Harvard and Columbia and other places before the Civil War, but like so many things in the South, it kept going during the Jim Crow era and into the 20th century. And my old man was born in 1916, and the guy who was the keeper of the the grave robbing, Chris Baker, he lived in the medical school building, and he was a he was known as a body man. Um, and 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 they had other people like this at different universities. They were like. It was a for you know it was it was part of Jim Crow medical schools. You had this guy who was paid as a janitor, but he was really like a professor because he knew as much he knew as much about uh, surgery as a lot of the medical professors did. And 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 Chris Baker was sort of venerated and glorified up until around World War II. And, and this was the thing, like for me, like hey, I was he's called right old, old Chris in the book, right? Or like yeah, old Chris, yeah, old Chris, yeah. He was, and he was, you know, sort of like this figure of, you know, that kind of Jim Crow, old South kind of stuff, where like, oh, he was a great guy, and he taught us so much, you know, kind of like Gone with the Wind or something, but digging up, digging up bodies. But the fact is that in the U.S., the this is a, this is why this is why I set it up in the book. I was trying to show. What what could have led to someone stealing a man's heart, especially a black man's heart? What could have led to this? And the more I got into it, I felt like the reader needed to understand this is the fundamentals of American medical education. And I bring you up to date at the end when they found a whole set of bodies, skeletons in 1994. And those skeletons are still in the very foundation of VCU <clears throat> uh, medical school because the university – uh, didn't want to stop a construction project, and they covered it up. That's and that's the last chapter of my book. It's called "Down in the Well," and they're still dealing with it. So I'm like, what? What even else to say? It, yeah. The one of the other stories that like was small, but but yeah. that black people had actually tried to sue or like tried to pass a law or something to stop the the grave robbery and were yeah. unsuccessful in it. But it was like it was cool to see people were trying to fight back yeah. and like. The anatomy Unable. rights, yeah. There were anatomy rights in New York City, in Philadelphia, Boston. And I thought that was good, too. And there was a big pushback. And in Richmond, there was a, a crusading editor named John Mitchell, who somebody should make a movie about, too. And he was a tough son of a gun who put out the the Richmond um, uh, 
well, his magazine was was in Richmond. I think it was called the Mercury. But I might have that wrong. But his he he was a tough seven a gun who who actually strapped on six guns and went down to Danville, Virginia, to write stories about lynching. So John Mitchell in his uh, in his newspaper called this out as late as the 1890s because. Uh, black people in Richmond were tired of it, even during Jim Crow, and were willing to speak up. And they would take prisoners from the Virginia State Pen about a mile away and, and, and take them over and take out their, their organs. So, um, yeah, there were, but, but all around the country, uh, there was a whole set of, they called them anatomy riots, dating back into like, I think like the 1840s or, you know, long ago, because uh, either freed blacks and sometimes poorer whites would see that um, that their graveyards were being plundered. Um, and one thing I learned, you know, as a white person who grew up in privilege and grew up around churches that had graveyards, is that's why there, uh, there's a whole there was a whole system of of burying bodies closer to the doors of the church and of protecting the graveyards because oh, the working wow. class people, yeah. So it's, yeah, the working class people and often the people of color couldn't afford the protection. And once uh, some, some people in New York or Philly, sometimes it was kids were looking through the, looking through the windows of the medical school, they go back, you, you know what they're doing in there? And that it led to riots and uh, different States, you know, New York passed some laws and, and it took a long, they passed a law in Richmond and in Virginia, but it was never enforced. You know, typical uh, Jim Crow stuff that they just turned turned the other way and, until um, until the practice stopped. Um, I guess you know, just sort of fizzled out because other people had died. Uh, they had different. They did pass a law to regulate it, and it, it finally did settle down. But the fact that it took to the 20th century, uh, I think it. I think it. It's uh, the attitudes. You know, continued into into the uh, into the modern times about uh, people of color, and I, you know, I called uh, you know the issue. They called it social death or being socially dead. If you had liquor on your breath as a black man, especially or a black woman, into a big urban hospital, whether it was Chicago, New York, Philly, Richmond, you were treat. You know, you were the invisible man, and and you. Can you yeah. There was one part of the book that I, uh, there was a question I didn't know the answer to. Sure. As you talk about the penny death insurance, mm -hmm. can you explain that to me? I like, didn't understand it. Well, the reason I brought that in was because um, the, the idea of having a proper burial uh, was, it was uh, in the 1880s, 1890s, because of people were afraid, especially working class people or poorer people, were afraid of having their bodies snatched. Uh, the uh, business, basic in insurance industry, started to prosper because people would would pay a little bit. I guess you call it penny insurance, uh, but they would pay a little bit so that they could protect their loved one and actually have a proper burial. And I oh, just okay. never knew. So many things in America are so weird and intermeshed, but the whole insurance industry, <laughs> you know, the whole uh, medical industry. Medical research, uh, people's you know, drawing on people's fears because they were justifiable fears too, and suspicions 
that go on today. You know, they've gone on through COVID. I, you know, I've done so many interviews around the country where people, often uh, black readers or uh, uh, commentators, will say, you know, I'm, I'm seeing people not really feeling the love about getting the COVID uh, shot, and it, it dates back to this kind of uh, suspicion. And the only good thing I can, I mean, one of the good things I can say about the use of the book, it's it's part of a, a educational effort at, at Virginia Commonwealth in history and medicine. They've used it. And, mm-hmm. uh, and all the universities, like uh, Politico had a good story recently where they started with my book, and they were, but it was out of Johns Hopkins, and they talked about the uh, a real reframing of the discussion at medical schools about historical trauma and talking about in, in real ways and trying to understand all of the emotional and psychological baggage that not only black patients, but black physicians might have to deal with. So my initial you know, effort has always been to tell the Bruce Tucker story. And if there's anything redemptive about it, 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 it is that hopefully it will help uh, like you know, enlighten a lot of people and, and lead to you know more equal treatment. There'll never be perfect treatment of people, I don't think, just because human nature isn't perfect. But you know, try, trying to do better. It also reminds me, you know, we talk about this idea that everything's about race, and people are like, "You're being dramatic," and you're like, "Nope, it actually." No, no. if anything, you? you're being we're being we're, we're, we understate it, and and yeah, and people don't want to talk about it in Virginia now. The governor doesn't want it. He doesn't want these kinds of things in the classroom. And yeah. Yeah. Now what, um, how has it been since the book came out? Are there, you know, I can only imagine like me, people are shocked. Have there yeah. been any interesting responses to it? You know, yes, there've been a lot of interesting responses and, you know, I'll just go right to the ones that have been more heartening to me is when I've had, uh, readers who are black of all ages, uh, uh, and and people who got people who are friends, like a friend of mine, I can think of from the YMCA, who, who told me um, that uh, he grew up in rural Virginia, around where the Levin case took place in Caroline County. Um, and uh, he said, "I always wondered, Chip, why my my parents would never uh, go down to MCV." Um, and I learned that from your book, um, and 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 also other readers, I think, you know, who who said that it helped them to um, uh, be- just better understand the, the, either their own fears or, or other people's fears of healthcare. Um, and in general, I think, um, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing to me is if I speak to groups where I speak to them, if I speak to them in, in the city, one set of responses. And then if I speak to more white conservative readers, frankly, outside of town, it's a whole different thing. And it's like, you know, well, why are you telling the story? You know, like I'm over-dramatizing it. And I'm saying, no, no. And as a matter of, you know, that's been the educational process for me. If, if any, as a reporter, you always sort of, sort of try to keep it kind of even and on even keel. But, you know, I mean, I, I guess the learning from other people, you know, and learning what I didn't know continues. And the thing I always say that, you know, when I started out, it was like I had this this story in my head about the heart transplant race and everything. But it really uh, it really went from my head to my heart because it really is all about um, a, a real wrong and, and the need to, to feel empathy. And so 
you know, the, the other thing I was on Friday night here in town, you know, the Black Lives Matters protests were happening. <laughs> the monuments were coming down. So I felt like, you know, kind of like writing a novel about the Civil War during the Civil War because it was like there was just I, I knew it was important, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, and, 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 that, and that I hoped I could do an adequate job of it. And what happened to William Tucker? So William Tucker, well, he 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 was he lived uh, for a number of years. I don't really know his, when he passed away, but he was Governor Wilder told me he was just really bitter that you know this whole that this, the jury's judgment against the family kind of reinforced his sense of of, of uh, race r- racial prejudice. Um, but his son Abraham is still alive, and that's one of the, he, he's in his mid sixties, and and you'll see in the book that he didn't want to talk to me, which I didn't blame him. And I was basically trying not to like re-traumatize him. But since then, uh, I, he, he's told me, he, he actually had a phone call with me not that long ago where he, 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 it helped him on some level to come to terms with what happened in the past. But back to this idea of an apology, that the university issued an apology, but I'm hearing from some of his relatives that they're not so sure about that. So the, the book is still open. And can you contextualize why the Bruce Tucker case matters in in the world of medicine? Well, it, it matters first of all because you know if you go back to Hippocrates to, to do no first of all to do no wrong, uh, they, that's all that was done to him. I mean, he, his life was was forgotten and and thrown away. Um, but I think in the world of medicine right now. It matters because there needs to be a awareness and sensitivity to, to people's real experiences and their real their shared pain of of not uh, receiving uh, uh, equal and, and first class care. So it, it matters, and it, I've been told by physicians who are younger now that they're glad that that this is one of the many stories, and there's you know many many other stories. Uh, about it from, you know, Henrietta Lacks and Tuskegee syphilis experience. So it's part, it fits on that continuum of, of stories that, that shouldn't be forgotten. And I always say also the importance of ethics and, and morality, because you could be in any situation and you, you could be put in a position where, well, you're, you're going to win something. You're going to win a heart transplant race, but at what price? And um, I think everything that's happened in the U.S. in the past few years you know, and especially the lack of, of compassion uh, to society, it, 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 it's important. It's important that the healthcare system kind of try to stay on or get on the right side of history. And, and this was all, the this was yeah. the first heart transplant in the South. This, yeah, in the segre- we, well, we say in the segregated below the Mason Dixon line. Um, it was the ninth in the U.S. Uh, and it was the sixteenth in the world, uh, but it was part of a whole like um, sort of train of transplants that happened in 1968. Got it. Yep. Um, okay. There are two questions I ask everybody. The first is what do you say to people whose hope is challenged in moments like this? People who have read your book, read mine, uh-huh. listened to podcasts, right. voted, testified, stood in the uh-huh. street, and they're like, the world's not getting better in the way I wanted to. What do you say to people whose hope is challenged? Wow. Um, well, I, I think the first thing I would say is, is to always, 
you know, go to those, to the, to the light, you know, go to the people that are, 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 are with you and trying to build you up in hope. Um, and I feel that way about this book because I didn't do it by myself. I did it because of a lot of different folks around town and around the U S who helped me out. So I, th I think, I think hope is something that is not individualistic. Uh, I think it, for me personally, it, it's a, it's kind of a group experience. Um, I think that it's easy to get disillusioned. Um, and so I think all of us have to find, you know, what really is our, our moral core, or if we, if we have a, you know, higher power or believe in God, what's that, but what's that to me in terms of hoping for everybody, you know, not, not just like hoping you, you win the lottery. <laughs> so. And then the second is what's yeah. a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Piece of advice. Um, uh, I would say to trust my intuition. Mm. And that came from my old man who was in like three wars and uh, unfortunately saw a lot of his friends die at places like Tarawa and uh, Saipan, the World War II in the Pacific. And uh, he had a lot of uh, interesting experiences on, on the front lines. So I always, he, 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 even though I didn't go in the military myself, um, my dad's uh, in, uh, belief in intuition um, and dreams, because I think dreams are a way that are a gift that, that ties you into, you know, what what you're really uh, about and what you should be doing if you listen closely enough. Boom. Well, everybody, got to read this book. You'll <laughs> learn a ton. Um, thank you so much for coming. We consider you a friend of the pod. How do people stay in touch with you? Is it Twitter? Is it Facebook? Is it a website? Um, I have uh, chipjonesbooks.com uh, is a website. I am on Instagram, but uh, but, but probably my, my website is the best. But it's just chip, chip, chip Jones Books on Instagram too. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Positive the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out and make sure you rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Positive the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Evan Sutton. Executive produced by me. And special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles E. Johnson.